Um, we are, you know, about a third of the way through Romans. Um, and as we've been studying Romans, we've uh, kind of been looking at everything in light of the problem that Paul is addressing in the church. Jew-Gentiles, uh, both in the church, and they have a really hard time getting along. Um, if you are thinking to yourself, yes, I have heard that before. We've talked about that in the Gospels and Acts. Well, just get ready, because the rest of the New Testament is also uh, going to be you know, largely addressing that issue. Um, and one of the jobs that we have as readers of the Bible and interpreters of the Bible is to try to say, okay, what issues in our modern world could we kind of map onto this and compare to this? Um, but Paul starts off in Romans by making what we could kind of refer to as an equalizing argument. He talks about how all people, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, all people have sinned. Um, Jews had the law. Gentiles didn't have the law. Did that really change the fact that all have sinned? No. 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 Because did, did the Jews keep the law? No. no. And it's not the hearers of the law that would be justified, but those who do the law. And no one has done the law. Everybody has broken it. Um, and Paul then talks about how, okay, these Christians who are in this church have been saved from their sin, though. They've been saved because God has given them grace in Christ. And how did they receive the gift of God's grace? By faith. By faith, they received God's grace as a gift, and they were counted righteous, or the word that Paul likes to use for counted righteous is justified they've been they've been justified god now sees them as righteous people he's not holding their sins against them and justification being right with god has come about by god's grace received through faith and paul goes from there and he talks about how this is really an old testament idea what old testament figure does paul use as his example Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. What would be the New Testament way of saying that? Abraham had faith and, he was count- and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. His faith, what? Justified, Justified him. Good. Um, in chapter 5, Paul kind of explained the mechanics of that a bit more. Um, In the same way that Adam committed the first original sin, and this then kind of polluted and corrupted all of those who were in Adam, or of Adam, uh, the same type of thing is offered now. Jesus obeyed where Adam disobeyed, and because Jesus has obeyed, those who are now in Jesus, or of Jesus, by faith, are counted righteous. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Yes. Yeah, I think you guys just you know, said that verse. So, In chapter 6, Paul's argument, and go ahead and open there, by the way. Paul's argument kind of reaches a new, uh, kind of a new place In chapter 6. Paul is a little bit worried that he might be misunderstood. 
Um, This is something that teachers and preachers have to worry about. I think I've told you guys before about preaching a sermon at a church uh, that was primarily old people. And after the sermon, a guy walks up to me and says, I didn't like your sermon. I said, well, why not? And he said, because you said this. And I said, well, if I had said that, I wouldn't have liked my sermon either. But the good news is I didn't say it. And I told him what I did say. And the guy looks at me and says, oh, yeah, I forgot to put my hearing aid on today. Right. So uh, there's a danger of, of sometimes being misunderstood. And, and Paul in chapter six is a little bit nervous that what he has said so far about us being saved by faith and not by works might be misunderstood. Um, somebody read chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Yeah, this is a question that Paul is kind of anticipating some of his audience might be asking. All right, you have just said, Paul, that we are saved not by the things that we do, not by works of the law, but by faith and by God's grace. And so does that mean that grace just kind of gives us a license to sin? Since we're not saved by our works, does that mean that our works don't matter? As long as we have faith, we can just kind of do whatever we want to do, and there's no consequences. What's Paul's answer in verse 2? Yeah, that's a really soft translation. Um, older translations, I think, get at the, uh, the kind of get at what Paul is saying there. He says, God forbid. Okay. So, here's where we're at. We're, we're all sinners. If we are to be saved, it's not going to be by the good things that we do because all of us break God's law and fall short of God's law. Um, We're saved by God's grace, which is received by faith, not by works. And these people are questioning, does that mean that we can just sin and live any old way? And Paul says, no, you cannot continue in sin. Well, why? He continues in verse 2 and says, how can we who died to sin, still live in it. Really important point in Paul's theology is that we are saved from sin. Now, that probably seems like a really elementary point, but it's not necessarily. A lot of times, whenever we think of salvation, if I asked you, what does the gospel save you from? How would you maybe answer? Okay, we maybe would answer and say, okay, the, the gospel saves me from sin. But what do you mean by that? What does it mean to be saved from sin? Given life instead death. What do you mean by that? Like, sin always brings death, and now that Jesus is here, he's defeated sin, so he brings us life instead. Yeah. What is the death that we're talking about there? Sin brings death. What does that mean? Hell. Okay, hell. Right? A lot of times, whenever we use language about salvation from sin, what we really mean is that we're saved from the consequences of sin, something like that. All right, sin brings death, sin brings hell, sin warrants God's fair and just and righteous wrath. Do you want that? No. 
And so a lot of times whenever we think about what are we saved from, what does the gospel save us from, what does Jesus save us from, we would answer the question along those lines. It it saves us from the consequences of sin. Paul's really, really important point in chapter 6 is that while that is true, it's not the whole story. The gospel doesn't just save us from the consequences of sin, but in chapter 6, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? The gospel saves us from sin itself. Sin is something that wants our worst. Sin doesn't love us. Sometimes we think that sin doesn't matter or that it's just a white lie or or that it's just a small thing. But the scriptures go to pains to talk about the depths of sin, how, how sin is something that is enslaving, how it's something that is addictive, how it's something that hurts us as people. It, it, it causes us to not be what we were created to be. And a really huge point in Paul's letters that he's going to make in chapter 6 and throughout is that the gospel brings about moral transformation. One of the things that it means whenever we say that we're saved from sin is that we're actually saved from sin. We start saying no to it, and we start saying yes to that which is good for us, which is holiness and obedience to God. Part of the salvation of the gospel is a moral salvation. We're transformed into holy people. This is how Paul says it in a different letter. This is from Colossians. Listen to uh, what he says here. This is Colossians 1. Uh, Starting in verse 19, it says, In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile him uh, to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is the chief goal of the gospel, according to Paul there? Takes people who were alienated from God, hostile in mind, who did evil deeds, and transforms them into people who are holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so Paul will say, if you are in a position where you're saying, I'm saved by grace that comes through faith, and that means that I have a license to sin. I can just kind of do whatever I want. He says, you fundamentally misunderstood the gospel. The gospel doesn't only save you from consequences of sin, it saves you from sin itself. So if you have died to sin, in verse 2, how can you still live in it? He continues, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our old self died. We have a new life. That's the point that he's driving at. In verse 5, he says, or actually, somebody read for us uh, verses 5 through 11. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of um, sin may be brought 
to nothing so that we would be no longer the enslaved. The one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but for the life he lives to God, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is driving at here is this concept that we've talked about before, that we have union with Christ. We have oneness with Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, who else died on the cross? Hmm? Yeah, our old self was crucified with him, according to verse 6. The old self there would refer to what? Yeah, sinful self, right? Our old self, or our old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, our old self died, and we have a new self. We're new creations. We're new people who have new life. We should dedicate that life to God. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He then continues, verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. So, can we continue in sin? Even though salvation is by grace through faith and not by works of the law, can we continue headlong in sin? No. The gospel brings salvation from sin. It brings new life, freedom from sin. And we should embrace those things as we embrace Christ. Um. There's a couple of terms that I want you guys to be familiar with. Um, Paul is about to kind of launch into a short um, segment of the letter where he wants to talk about the role of the law in the Christian life. All right? So number one, does the law save you? No. Do works of the law save you? You're saved by grace through faith. You're justified by faith. That's what Paul's been driving at. So works of the law don't save you. But does that mean that the law has absolutely no relevance for the Christian life? How do you know that? What did Paul say in this chapter that helps you to know that? How do you know the difference between sin and righteousness? Huh? Huh? Yeah, how do, you, how do you know the difference between obedience and disobedience, though? Obedience to what and disobedience to what? The law. To the law. All right? So, um, as Paul is kind of walking through this letter, a, a large part of this letter, and, and really all of Paul's letters, is trying to help Christians understand their proper relationship to the law now. All right? He's said in chapters 1 through 5, basically, the law doesn't save you. Uh, it's, it's doers of the law that would be saved, not just hearers of the law. None of you can accomplish salvation through works of the law. 
Whether you're Gentile or Jew, it doesn't matter. If you're trying to be saved by the law, you're going to fail. Now in chapter 6, though, well, what does that mean? We're saved by grace through faith. Can we just sin and live any old way? No. You've died with Christ. You have new life. And now present yourself to God as obedient servants. Present your members as instruments of righteousness. Well, for Paul, where would you go to figure out the difference between disobedience and obedience, sin and righteousness? It's to God's law. So, um, a couple of terms that I kind of want you to know. Um, Number one is legalism. These are, both of the terms that I'm going to give you are errors that Paul does not want you to commit. Number one would be legalism. Legalism is the belief that salvation... is found through the, and legal makes you think of, law. law. Right? Paul says this is wrong. This is what he's been driving at for a really long time. We, the Christian's relationship to the law is not a legalistic relationship. It's not that you do everything right and then God saves you. It's not that you do all of this stuff and earn God's favor. Salvation, justification, is by grace, through faith, as a gift. But the other error that Paul doesn't want you to fall into is called anti-nomianism. Nomos, you see the nom right there? Nomos is the Greek word for law. What does anti mean? Not. Not or like antichrist would be the one who is against. against, Right. So antinomianism uh, would literally mean against the law. And this would be the belief that uh, Christians... And you guys know why I put the X right there. I've told you that before, right? Christians, um, or we'll say it this way. Uh, antinomianism is the belief that the law has no relevance in the Christian life. And Paul is also making the point that this one isn't true. Does the law still have relevance in the Christian? Do you ever, did God ever show up to the Christian church and say, by the way, the Ten Commandments, that was great for ancient Israel, uh, not for you guys. God ever do that? No. In fact, Paul, in the last part of this letter, like chapter 12, chapter 13, is just going to kind of list together parts of the Old Testament law, such as love your neighbor as yourself. You know what chapter, you know what book that's from? Leviticus. God ever show up to the Christian church and say, oh, hey, that commandment, that was for ancient Israel, not for you? No. Um, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is that one for us? God showed up to Ephesus, right? And he said, that command not to murder anybody, don't worry about it. He showed up to Corinth and said, oh, adultery? Ah. Right? The law still has a function in the life of the Christian church. 
Um, in verse 14, Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law, but under grace. And some people misinterpret that verse to say, you know, Paul says, uh, you're not under law, you're under grace. They, they misinterpret that, vo- that verse to mean something along the lines of um, the law doesn't matter anymore. I'm not under it. I'm under grace, so I don't really need to worry about God's law anymore. Obviously, that's not Paul's point because he's just spent the first part of this chapter talking about you need to be obedient. You, you need to not sin. What it means to not be under law but under grace means that the law is not a judge to you anymore. You're judged on the basis of God's grace, not on the basis of law. You have a question? And just to point out that I've actually even seen that verse be misinterpreted the other direction as well. That like, for sin will have no more dominion over you, and if sin does have dominion over you, then you aren't. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what Paul is driving at here... Um, and we can look into chapter 7 for this a little bit. I know that you guys have, have read chapter 7 already. You've read through chapter 11, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, what Paul is really driving at here uh, is the idea that if you were to be judged on the standard of the law, that would be very bad news for you. The good news is that you're no longer judged on the standard of the law. You're, you're judged... Uh, according to Jesus's righteousness, which you've received by faith as a gift. But now that you have been transformed, you've died to sin and you've been raised to new spiritual life, you have a freedom from sin. You should look at the law as a guide for your life. We could, we could say it this way. We want to know the relationship between the Christian and the law. It would look something like this. Number one, we could put the word guilt as, as we as sinful people look at the law initially, what do we learn? That we are guilty. We are guilty. We are sinners. Um, law teaches us we are sinners. And it condemns. You're not a doer of the law. You've broken God's standard. But that's not all the law does. The second thing that the law does um, is kind of a gracious function. Um, Feeling guilt and feeling this weight of condemnation, the law bears witness to Jesus and points us to his righteousness. You know, an analogy that's used in the New Testament in the book of James is, is like a mirror. Um, some of you guys wake up, um, you know, Beyonce has the whole thing where she, you know, woke up flawless in the morning. Most of us are not Beyonce. Um, and most of you, uh, Michael Scott is Beyonce always, though. Um, you guys, um, that was an office quote. You guys don't watch The Office, do you? Anyways, um, you know, you wake up in the morning and you look into a mirror and um, do you initially like what you see very much? Before the makeup and the hairbrush and the shower and the beard oil, um, you know, you look in the mirror and uh, you, you, you glance and you go, ah, 
right? Like, oh my goodness, I have to fix all of that before I, I go to school, right? Um, anybody had a similar experience to that? You know, get, get a witness. Uh, somebody testify for me, right? So, um, so you look into the mirror in the morning and you see pimples and warts and, uh, you know, eyebrows that need to be plucked and you're having bedhead and all of this stuff. And, and, and the very first thing that your mirror does in the morning is it condemns you. You look at it and you say, I, I am ugly, right? But that is a really helpful thing. Because if you didn't know you looked that way, and you came to school like that, you know, um, your social clout could, could really go down the drain pretty, pretty quickly, right? So the mirror points out the problem, but it also points you to solutions. Oh, I need to take care of my hair. I need to do this, that, and the other thing. The law does a similar thing. It, it shows us our guilt, but then it pushes us to seek after and look for God's grace. And then after we've received it, the third function of the law, we could say, um, we could use the word gratitude for it. After we've received this grace, we live before God with thanksgiving as a living sacrifice before him. Um, We use the law, I have another G word, as a guide for life in Christ, for a life that pleases God. God. This is the way that Paul would kind of explain this whole thing. Um, the law is, is the law a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. He says in um, chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law is good. But what the law does is it gives us an awareness of our sin. It sets a standard that's too high for us to achieve. And so it points us to seek after God's grace. It seeks us uh, to look to Christ, or it pushes us to, to look to Christ. And after we do that, it then becomes a guide for our lives. Now, um, Are all parts of God's law going to be applicable to our lives in the exact same way? Definitely not. Yeah, the answer to that would be no. Um, And Paul doesn't really get into this. He, okay, he's writing to a church that has been established for a while. And he's assuming that there's a certain level of understanding here. All right? Whenever we talk about the law, um, a lot of times what we're referring to is what we would kind of classify as the moral law. Okay? Um, We usually break the Old Testament law into three parts. The first part is the sacrificial second part we sometimes call civic or ceremonial. I use those terms pretty interchangeably. I mean the same thing by them. And the third part would be the moral. Um, Book of Leviticus gives, you know, the first several chapters are all about how to offer sacrifices. Do we do that today? 
as Christians. Why? Jesus fulfilled that portion of the law. He was the ultimate sacrifice. So we, uh, how would you obey the sacrificial laws today? Yeah, yeah. You obey the sacrificial laws today as a Christian by trusting in the sacrifice that God provided to take away your sin the same way that ancient Israelites trusted that their sacrificial system was doing some sort of work on their behalf. That would be how you obey those laws today. You want to obey the first several chapters of Leviticus? Guess what? If you're a Christian, you have trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, the civic and ceremonial laws, these are a little bit more complicated. Um, These would include several different things. This would include, like, the food laws that keep you ceremonially clean. This would include the washings. This would include the holy days, except for one. You know what holy day would not be part of the civic or ceremonial law? What would the moral law be? Where would you look for a summary of the moral law? Ten Commandments. What's the fourth commandment? Sabbath. Um, When was the Sabbath actually instituted? Creation. Not at Sinai. So... I would make the case that the Sabbath law is actually part of the moral law. But, based on what Paul says, uh, which we'll see in the latter part of Romans and in uh, Colossians, um, there's a, it seems like there's a pretty big debate about which day to celebrate the Sabbath now. Um, is the Sabbath um, still on Saturday as a day of rest, and then the Lord's Day on Sunday, is that your day of worship? So do you have day of rest, day of worship, or is the Lord's day the new Sabbath? And Paul basically looks at Christians who are getting in a tizzy over it and saying, why are you fighting? It's like, just just find a way to get along. Um, But um, I would argue that the Sabbath being part of the Ten Commandments is part of the moral law. You are commanded to rest. Which should be hard or easy to obey. If I, if I said on Fridays you were commanded to come in here and do the thing that's going to recharge your batteries, would, it be, would that be a day you would skip probably? Would it be easy to do what I have told you to do on that day? Yeah. So anyways, um, civic law though, food, washings, holy days, um, how is the government run? Um, you guys remember that Leviticus and Deuteronomy have like a ton of laws about, um, you know, economics, stuff like that. Um, these laws are very diverse, and so they're kind of applicable to Christians in different ways depending on which law is used. So, for example, um, one thing that we do with these is we look at principles, not particulars. I'm really on an alliteration thing today, aren't I? Um, an example of this. Um, there's a law in, the, in Leviticus that says that um, 
the edge of fields, whenever, whenever you have harvest season, the edge of fields, uh, don't glean them. Leave that food for the poor. All right? How many of you have fields that you harvest every year? Me. Okay. Most of you don't. So what would be the principle behind that law that you can still do? Be generous to the poor. Take care of the poor, right? Um, a lot of times these are, a lot of the times the civic and, and ceremonial laws um, are very context specific. In Israel, which is an agrarian ancient society, do these specific things. And if we want to apply these to our lives today, we have to kind of think about principles and our particulars. Um, another example of this is there's a law, um, don't put a muzzle on an ox as it treads out your grain. All right. Um, basically, they didn't have tractors back then. All right. So as they're harvesting the grain, they use beast of labor for it. And what some people would do is they would put a muzzle on the ox. And what did that keep the ox from doing as it worked? Eating it. Eating it. Eating the grain. God's law in Deuteronomy says don't put a muzzle on an ox as it treads out the grain. If the ox is working hard for you, let it eat and be taken care of. Paul takes that in 1 Corinthians and says, hey, most of you guys live in cities. You don't have oxes. A way that you can apply this is take care of your pastors. They work really hard for you, so pay them. Make sure they have supplies. If someone is working hard for you, give them their dues. So you see how he's going with principles, not particulars there. This law about oxen are actually about the people that work hard for you. Um, Others of these, uh, the civic ceremonial laws, um, will be fulfilled in Christ. So, for example, um, the high holy days uh, of Israel's calendar, like Feast of Tabernacles, um, Passover, those are not things that we celebrate anymore. Uh, we see them as temporary festivals that we're pointing forward to Christ's coming. Uh, tabernacles pointing forward to the incarnation, like we talked about with John. Passover pointing to his death, like we talked about with John. Um, so, um, you know, we would, we would want to be a little bit careful here. Um, the cleanliness laws and, and things like that would also be applied a little bit differently. We eat, you know, food that used to be unclean because in Acts we saw that Jesus made all things clean. Um, but that separation from things that defile us, um, Paul will pick that up in 1 Corinthians and will say that's really about moral things. Stay away from sinful activities. Stay away from temptation. Uh, and then we have the moral commandments, which are really the straightforward ones and really what we would be talking about in Romans whenever Paul is saying uh, the law doesn't save you, but it is a guide for your life. Paul cites the um, moral commandment, do not covet, in chapter 7 to make this point. He talks about how he struggles with coveting. So can Paul be saved by the work of the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment is don't covet, right? He, he says, you know, um, I'm not saved by the law, chapters 1 through 5. Chapter 6, I still need to observe it. I, I still need to fight against sin and strive for righteousness. Chapter 7, he says, here's an example from my life. I read the law and I read don't covet. And that commandment is holy and righteous and good, but it revealed that I am not. I read don't covet, and you know what, according to Paul, he says, I, I read don't covet, and you know what the first thing he did was? Started coveting. 
So he says, who can deliver me from this body of death? Here I am. I have God's law. I don't keep it. So I'm not going to be justified by it. I hear don't covet and I start coveting. And he says at the end of the chapter, verses 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, The law doesn't save me, but the grace that I find in Christ does. So we'll return to that last point tomorrow and then start talking about chapter 8. Tonight, I want you to read... I just want you to read one chapter, but I want you to do something as you read it. Read um, Romans 12 and pay a little bit of attention. Um, Can you find... Quotes from Old Testament law in chapter 12. And if you can, bring them up tomorrow and it will make me very happy. You might have a reward. Yes. Yes, memory verse, sorry. Romans 8, 11. Thank you, Eliza.